Turn with me, please, to the book of 2 Corinthians this evening. The book of 2 Corinthians once again. Introduced the letter last week. We'll continue to push into this book tonight. The hymns we sing on Sunday night are favorites from the congregation. We keep a sheet in the narthex where you can request any hymns you want to sing. And I've almost used up all the ones that are written there, so please add some when you go out tonight or get a message to me during the week and we'll make sure we sing those. Second Corinthians chapter 1, let me read beginning at verse 1 and then I'll read through to verse 7. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy our brother, to the church of God in Corinth together with all his holy people throughout Achaia, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles, so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. For just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. If we are distressed, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, It is for your comfort, which produces in you patient endurance of the same sufferings we suffer. And our hope for you is firm, because we know that just as you share in our sufferings, so also you share in our comfort. Amen for God's word, and let me pray one more time for us. Lord, again we ask, be our teacher tonight, and thank you for Jesus Christ the Lord. He is the one whom we proclaim, who is revealed in the word, to whom we look for our life, for our salvation. And I pray for Aaron also teaching the young people that you'd fill him with the Spirit and bless those times and that the good teaching there would shape their faith, their outlook on life, their pursuit of wisdom and virtue and obedience to you and keep them in the faith and bless us as we look to your word together. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, just last week we introduced uh, the letter of 2 Corinthians, and we identified a few elements here. Uh, from verse 1, we saw the author self-identified as Paul, and as we'll see going through the letter, this is a uh, book in which he very much opens his heart uh, to the church in order to help heal these relationships uh, that have gotten off track. He states the authority behind his mission. He calls himself an apostle, one who has this special call to oversee the churches, to spread the word, which we all do. We were just singing that. Uh, But in his particular uh, office there, to oversee these young churches, to get them on their feet, and to see them come to spiritual maturity. And we also identified the audience, the church of God in Corinth. And we took time to say something about the city of Corinth, how the church was founded and what happened after Paul left, so the various visits that he made to this church, the different letters he wrote to them, the reports he received back from them. A lot of that provides the background that helps us get an idea of why Paul says the kinds of things he does in the letters that God has given us. Paul probably wrote at least four letters to Corinth, and God in his providence has seen fit to give us Two of them, the the one we're looking at tonight, is probably the last one that he wrote uh, to the church of Corinth. But that background of conflict 
and of estrangement of what the Corinthians value and how they may or may not find that uh, in their apostle uh, will very much uh, play into the content of this letter. And we stopped there after we talked a little bit about the city and how the church was founded. So let me say one more thing about the audience, and then we'll continue into verse 2 and beyond. There's a city of Corinth that we considered, a church that was founded there. Let's consider how Paul greets this church in the opening verse. How does he describe these Christians in Corinth? Well, first he identifies them as a church. This letter is addressed to the church of God in Corinth. And the word that's translated church in English, all right, here's how this works. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, you've got a lot of references to the assembly. Gather the Israelites before me. Assemble the people there. And when the Hebrew Bible was translated into Greek, as cultures changed and and, and various languages came and went, the word that was chosen to translate the word assembly, the Hebrew assembly, the people of God, is the word that Paul and other writers use to refer to the church. In the New Testament. And that's intentional. It would have been a loaded word. It would have echoed with their ears in a way uh, that might not echo with ours if we didn't have that background. Paul is trying to say, look, there, there's a continuity here. The church of God in Corinth is an expression of God's people. And not just a people that have sprung out of nowhere, but the people of God that he's been ministering through for thousands of years. You're an expression of that people. You're a a new covenant expression, we might say. Jesus said, this is the new covenant in my blood. This is the age of fulfillment of all those great promises. This is the remade people of God, and it has taken shape there in Corinth. And notice that he also calls them the holy people, often rendered in other translation as saints. And once again, if, if you were reading your Greek translation of the Old Testament, you'd see that word often in context where you're reading about the tabernacle or the temple, all the holy objects that are there in the Old Testament place of worship. It's that word group that Paul uses to describe the Christians, God's holy people, the people whom God has saved and sanctified and separated and claimed for his holy purpose. And by the way, you might not expect that here if you know anything about the Corinthians. It won't be long before Paul has to get into the nitty-gritty. But before he does, he identifies them as holy people, saints, because that's what grace does. Who we are in position before God is his holy people. Now, does our practice always match that? No, it doesn't. And we strive to bring them into line. But who we are before God is what matters. And before God, this church was a holy assembly because they were connected to Jesus Christ by grace. And that brings us then to verse 2 and the answer. What does this author, who is an apostle, say to this audience? Well, we know there's some problems that he's going to address, and he lets us know at the very beginning of the letter what the answer will be in verse 2. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace. Very common Christian phrase that we see throughout the New Testament. Of course, grace, we're familiar with that concept. God's unmerited, undeserved favor. Peace is that Old Testament concept of shalom or wholeness. 
It's not just an absence of conflict, though there is that people in parts of the world right now would love absence of conflict, wouldn't they? Well, it's an absence of conflict, and it's also a wholeness because God's bringing everything together. He's putting his world to rights as he promised to do. So all the things that God has promised in the Old Testament, they've begun. They're coming to pass among his people even now. Not not yet all the way fulfilled, but those who are in Christ already begin to experience that wholeness, that peace, that shalom. And together this phrase reflects God's gift, the well-being he's promised in the gospel, the true peace which is conveyed graciously through Christ. And so that's Paul's way of just giving us a heads up. We've got 13 chapters of letter, but let me just tell you what the short answer is to all these problems. It's grace and peace. No matter the severity of the problem, no matter the severity of the strain in the relationship, grace is the answer which will bring peace between the parties. And so Paul wants to use this letter to try to create that kind of culture, that kind of dialogue between him and the Corinthians. One author notes, one of the big ideas in the Corinthian epistles is the importance of creating a Christ culture in our churches. In other words, a culture in which the grace of Christ is present, where the aroma of Christ, Paul will use that language in a few chapters, is present. Another author says his theological and pastoral exhortations are aimed at creating a different culture, one different from their background, different from their culture, different from their expectations, but one characterized by the cross, grace, love, and reconciliation. And especially as we push into this letter towards the final chapters, an emphasis even on weakness, sufficient grace for weakness. One of the big themes of the letter, again, is that Christian service takes place in a series of strange paradoxes, power and weakness, triumph and tragedy, strength and vulnerability, and death blossoming into life. And it's almost as if Paul is trying to become, you know, a a living, breathing version of the gospel story. And what is the gospel story? One, One of triumph and success? No, it's one of death leading to resurrection and life. And so if Paul has to suffer for their well-being, if there has to be death, so to speak, then Paul will go through that for their sake so that they may know the life of the gospel. And and that's a great message, by the way, uh, for our current time. Uh, One author observes, We too easily drift into ruts of power, posturing, position, and presentation as the pragmatic backbone of ministerial effectives. And 2 Corinthians offers a sobering, loud, cautionary voice against such an approach to ministry. Beware of the idea that it's it's always this professional uh, presentation. Beware of the idea that just through money we can accomplish things. Beware of the things that through appearance we can sell it and compete and get a little bit more of this market share in the church space. Paul says away with that. doesn't mean you don't do our best and and try to communicate well. Uh, But what Paul would put before them is the power of grace even if that has to be seen amidst weakness. So with that background, that's the overview, that's that's the lane we're going to drive down in this series. Let's now look at how Paul introduces this letter, the first things he begins to speak of in verses 3 through 7. We'll see in even these opening words the strain that exists 
in Paul's life and between him and the Corinthians. And he wants to lead with this idea that the pain of our afflictions does not need to result in relational breakdown and bitterness. And so in the opening verses, Paul will introduce this idea of suffering, but how God redeems our suffering. How our suffering can result in good for ourselves and others. And he won't do it by minimizing suffering. He won't say, hey, you shouldn't be feeling those things. Hey, if you were trusting God, you wouldn't be experiencing those things. And and he won't speak of it in a cheap transactional sense. Oh, you went through those deep waters. Well, it's going to pay off in this tangible ministerial benefit. He won't cheapen it. He won't minimize it. He'll redeem it. He'll show just how significant hard experiences can be when God's grace enters the situation. So let's look at that idea here, how uh, suffering and comfort are used by God for his glory and our good. And just two ideas will help structure that. First, Paul gives attention to the comfort God gives us. In verse 3, there's a focus on the comfort God gives us. Paul often begins his letters by giving thanks for his audience or maybe telling them how he's praying for them. But he he skips that in this letter and goes right to a focus on his experience of suffering and comfort. Verse 3 reads, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort. Now, to begin with praise, maybe that's a little out of step with Paul's normal letters, but depending on the worship context, might be a little more familiar. So Jews in the synagogues, they had a series of 18 benedictions. Praise language would have been familiar in the Jewish assembly. Of course, as we read our Old Testament and the Psalms, they're just full of praises, benedictions offered to God. And so Paul opens his letter in that way with a praise to God who provides all of this compassion and comfort. The the idea here is that Paul is going to already model how we should respond to suffering. He, He hasn't even told us about his sufferings yet. But before he tells us about them, he begins with this praise to God who gives all comfort. I mean, after all, Paul's strategy here in this letter is he wants to improve the relationship. He wants to see fruitfulness among the Corinthians despite all these difficulties. And so Paul's going to show how God can bring good out of evil, how God can show comfort and compassion in the midst of suffering. He gives comfort even if he does not provide an immediate fix. And so notice how Paul describes God here. He is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Two descriptions here. The Father of compassion and the God of all comfort. First, this idea of the Father of compassion. The word compassion communicates a concern for the troubles of another person. And in the Old Testament, the whole Bible, but there's this rich Old Testament tradition of God showing compassion for his suffering children. Psalm 103 is is exemplary here. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. That has, and I've said this over and over, I'll say it again. That phrase has brought comfort to me over and over again. God remembers 
that we are but dust. And when you think of the temptations you face or the times you blow it and you, and you think he, the, the severe God must be displeased, he remembers that we're but dust. He, he just knows what we're like and he's compassionate and merciful on this. Notice the comparison to a fatherhood as a father has compassion on his children. So the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. If you earthly parents know how to show some compassion, cut your kids a break well, when they mess up, well then God, think how much more. God must do for us because he remembers uh, that we're but dust. Good, good guidance there for parents as well. Be patient, be compassionate, be merciful uh, to those we care for. So he's the father of compassion. That's just who God is. It, it characterizes his nature. He forgets our sins and he remembers that we're but dust. And he's also the God of all comfort. And the word comfort here uh, takes a particular angle in this verse. We think of comfort as you know, lifting our spirits, being encouraged. It is that, but it's a little bit more. It's also the act of emboldening another in belief or course of action. Not just encouragement, but exhortation. In other words, God lifts our spirits, but he also does it in a way where he affects a forward-looking outlook. He lifts our spirits, but also strengthens our sense of hope for what lies down the road. He enables us to look to the future with some hope. Not just comforted because we're crushed and it's bad and this is always how it's going to be, but to actually have a hopeful outlook on the future. I've been reading through a book on Christian virtue called After You Believe, and the author tells a story of Mark Baxter. He lived in England, and it was a particularly rainy time of year, and they, he and his family wanted to go out for a walk when the rains were finally starting to subside, and as they were going for a walk, his three-year-old daughter walked over to a puddle, and she vanished, and he realized instantly what must have happened. The storm drain must have broke. And so in his very quick thinking, he thought, okay, if she went down a storm drain, it's going to empty into the nearest wider area. So he took off about 100 yards. He knew that there was an exit pipe there, a longer river, and he figured that's where uh, the drain pipe would exit. And he ran for 100 yards, and when he got there, he saw his daughter coming out. He could recognize her rain slicker, and thank God they were able to get her out, revive her. She lived. Family's doing well. But when he was telling the story, he said, as I'm running that 100 yards, every time a negative thought would come, I would just choose, I'm not going to let my mind go down that path. I'm going to go down the path that says, here's what I can do while I'm running these 100 yards, try to save my daughter's life. He, he had an outlook of looking towards the future and trying to do something. And I think maybe, just maybe, uh, that's what Paul's getting at here. The God of compassion gives us comfort. And it's not merely to make us feel better. There are times we need that. We're just low and God just lift my spirits. He does. And then he does even more. He gives us an outlook of hope for the future. And he's the God of all comfort then. Gives all kinds of comfort. Whatever you may face, whatever the need may be, he gives it. And so Paul leads with this thought. He praises the God of all comfort. And then the second thought is the comfort we share with others in verses 4 through 7. So he starts with the God of comfort and then looks at how God comforts us and how we might then comfort 
others. So notice the first line of verse 4. It kind of hooks into the end of verse 3. The God of all comfort who comforts us in all our troubles. And troubles, you really don't need to define that word, do you? But again, it's, it's the events or the circumstances of life which produce this deep distress. The word in other contexts can simply mean pressure. So what happens in life that creates that sense of pressure, that sense of distress? It's in those times that we experience God's comfort. And Paul, you know, there's a little bit of a focus here uh, on affliction, obviously. Paul, Paul is relating some kind of season of trouble. He'll say more about that in verses 8 through 11, so we'll look at that next week. But do notice just there in verse 8 towards the end, he says, We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself. I've read this a few times, and my eyes just went right over that phrase until more recently. We despaired of life itself? Man, what was going on in Paul's sufferings where he was beginning to despair of life? That's a serious trial. That's some intense suffering. It is in that kind of situation that God will show up and give comfort. So Paul is laying out the big ideas here that will uh, shape so much of this letter. So let's just look at those big ideas that he gives us in these verses. First, just the idea that God always meets us in our affliction. One author writes, God counterbalances affliction with strong encouragement. And I've used this model a lot. Grace, comfort, faith, they aren't bubbles that insulate us from suffering. No, they are the remedies that meet us In the pit of suffering, Joseph, because he was a man of faith and of God's favor, was not kept from trial. He got thrown into a pit and into prison. But God came down into those and met him in those places before finally exalting him out of them. So God meets us in affliction. And as severe as the affliction may be, so will be the sufficiency of grace. That's what Paul is saying when he describes God as comforting us in all our troubles. So this God of all comfort promises to meet you wherever you need him. But then, notice this, the encouragement doesn't terminate with Paul. In other words, the encouragement we receive, it's not a dead-end street or, or, or a sink with just a stopper in it. It will flow through us eventually to others. Paul is able to empathize with the sufferings of others and offer encouragement. The end of verse 4, so that we can, comfort, uh, we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. Now something about maybe suffering yourself makes you understand then the sufferings of others. Be a little more patient with them, a little more empathetic, so to speak, to stand in their shoes for a minute, try to feel what they feel, and in that togetherness, then offer the comfort that you have received. It's not, hey, I've got this comfort, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to shut down what you're going through. You shouldn't be feeling those things. No, it's, I've walked through that valley too. Can I just share how God met me in that place? And perhaps you'll know the same sufficiency of your grace. So together, verse 4 gives us the idea that when we suffer, God comforts us so that we can then comfort others. 
in this spring, and, and we may say, well, why does God design it that way? I'll say something about that in a moment towards the end. But before we even try to understand the why, just know that that design does bring great comfort to other sufferers, to, to know that those who have suffered can share with others. That brings a lot of comfort when you're on the receiving end of that comfort. Take, for example, Spurgeon, the great preacher. One recent book has been written about Spurgeon's long-time battle with depression. And one time Spurgeon preached on the text, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Spurgeon talks about what a difficult message it was to preach because in describing uh, these sufferings of depression and abandonment, you know, just it was so vivid to him because that was his experience. But he opened up about that. And afterwards, someone in the congregation visited him and just shared, you know, what a comfort it was to them to know that that was something that Spurgeon had gone through, that their experience was not unique, and that somebody as great as a preacher like him would be afflicted by the same trials. And Spurgeon writes this, I led him into gospel, light, and liberty, but I know I could not have done it. If I had not myself been confined in the dungeon in which he lay. I tell you the story, brethren, because you sometimes may not understand your own experience. And the perfect people may condemn you for having it. But what do they know of God's servants? You and I have to suffer much for the sake of the people of our charge. So this is something that God has designed for the well-being and the mutual comfort of his people. And so Paul elaborates on this in verse 5. He says, For just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. So Paul here refers to these sufferings of Christ. So we, we, we understand that Christ suffered decisively on the cross. He, he offers the atoning sacrifice to God. But even so, when we suffer, it is in a sense in union with him. Uh, our own sufferings are an expression of Christ's sufferings. And we can say this appropriately. They're a supplement to his sufferings. What do I mean there? There are ways in which Christ suffered. And then there are ways in the world in which his church suffers where the time and circumstances are different. But together, those sufferings are done in union with one another. We suffer in association with him. And so Paul writes here just that we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ. We don't suffer alone, but we suffer with him. And by the way, maybe that's a little preemptive strike against the group that Paul will later describe as the super apostles. You know, they're high and mighty and strong and powerful. Well, Christ suffered. Paul suffers. Do they? Who's the true apostle then? And so Paul says, you know, as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, so also our comfort abounds in Christ. Just once again, that the comfort rises to the level of the suffering. In fact, Paul says it abounds. It's like the leftovers after the feeding of the 5,000. There's more than enough. What does Romans say? As sin abounded, grace abounded much more. Well, where suffering abounds, comfort abounds all the more. And so Paul summarizes and begins to land the plane in verse 6. He says, If we are distressed, it is for your comfort and salvation. That's what he's just said. If we suffer, that will be for your 
comfort. How? Because if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which produces in you patient endurance of the same sufferings we uh, suffer. So you put the two ideas together, and it's this. Suffering can be deflating. But when we experience suffering, or when we witness the suffering of others, and we see them receiving encouragement, it's just this reminder that we're a part of this bigger picture, this larger project of what God is doing to bring comfort to his people and for them to comfort one another. If Paul is afflicted, that is for the encouragement of the Corinthians. Why? Because number one, when he's afflicted, he'll be comforted. And when he's comforted, then they can be encouraged. That they will be encouraged when they also suffer and endure uh, affliction and receive God's comfort. So it's a win-win. There's comfort that follows affliction. And we can know that whether we're in good times or bad, God's grace will be sufficient. And again, we, we might ask, but why does God design it that way? What, you know, okay, so comforter, you know, sufferers are able to comfort other sufferers. Why have a chain of suffering and comfort? Why not just remove all suffering in the first place? That is something we have to leave to God. That his sovereign wisdom, his sovereign prerogative, his sovereign goodness have designed it this way. But rather than just saying, well, God's sovereign, don't question it, we're going to suffer, look at the sufficient grace that that sovereign God gives for our suffering, that, that he is sovereign over it, and that he has sovereign ability to give abundant grace in the midst of it. So that Paul concludes with hope there in verse 7. And our hope for you is firm. Because we know that just as you share in our sufferings, so also you share in our comfort. Paul will go on to tell us a little bit about what his sufferings are. I don't think he ever tells us in 2 Corinthians what their sufferings are. But he's optimistic that should opposition come, should suffering come, then God will give them comfort. Why? Because of the certainty of his promises and the presence of his spirit. Again, major themes that we'll see in the coming chapter. So, friends, take heart. Should you suffer, should you grieve, should you mourn, that's not a wasted experience. That's just not, okay, well, it's just part of life. Go through it, get through it. That is, a, that is an experience God can redeem to make you know the sufficiency of his grace. Not just to teach us things, though that's important. Man, the things we learn about ourselves and, and where we need to heal, where we need to grow, how we can love in, in times of suffering, that's, that's valuable information, too. But God redeems those times with grace, with growth, with comfort, with his presence. And so not only are those times not wasted, they're not consuming. God didn't design them to be the end of you. God didn't design them to crush you. God didn't design them uh, to just uh, show just how bad you've been or, or how bad life is. God designed them to be near to you and to show you his grace and to show you his presence and give you hope and a future. So let's pray for that grace. Let's give thanks to God. Father in heaven, thank you so much again for many, many mercies. And, and we've heard stories from this congregation, different seasons of suffering or loss or hard times that people 
have gone through. And I thank you for your grace. I pray wherever there's still, you know, trial or lingering distress or the need of your grace and comfort, Lord, give it. Um, the design of your grace is not to make us triumphalistic, that, that we're immune from suffering. It's to be a sufficient daily grace and the love of God poured into our hearts. And I, So I do pray that we know that grace. And I pray we know hope, that these sufferings would not overwhelm or crush or, or lead to despair, that we know hope, hope amidst suffering, that we might persevere. And then make of us a congregation that having learned your grace in our own sufferings can comfort each other and help prop each other up, help carry each other's burdens. Do that great work for us, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's sing in closing hymn 445. Bring them in, hymn 445. We'll sing all three verses. Stand with me, please.